In his letter to the Ephesians, Paul constructs a grand logical explanation for why and how we should be faithful to God, and he exposes what he calls the mystery of God, which has been kept secret from the beginning of time. I'm Mark Holt, and this is Gospel Doctrine. So glad to have you listening for another episode of Gospel Doctrine. Today's lesson is on Ephesians for the perfecting of the saints. As always, if you have a question about a past or upcoming lesson that you would like answered from the scriptures involved, or if you have any question at all that you want an answer from the scriptures, please email me at gt at gospeltoctrine.com. Now, as we begin discussing the letter to the Ephesians, this letter reminded me, just in my own intuition, of the scripture in the book of Jacob and the book of Mormon, chapter 2, verse 9. And if you remember in chapter 2, Jacob is coming before the Nephites and explaining to them all the sins that they're committing. And he says to them, at this time, it burdeneth my soul that I should be constrained to enlarge the wounds of those who are already wounded. In other words, uh, it makes me sad that I can't talk to you about the pleasing word of God. Uh, He describes that as saying, uh, instead of feasting upon the pleasing word of God, they will have those who are righteous will have daggers placed to pierce their souls and wound their delicate minds. And that is so often what Paul is doing is he's calling the people that he's writing his epistles to, to repentance. And in this book, in my opinion, in, in my interpretation, just personally, it feels like he finally gets to give them the pleasing word of God. And so I was reminded of that because we have a, a contrast between what normally happens and what's going on today. Um, which isn't to say that that Paul departs vastly in the spirit of his writing in the book of Ephesians from his other epistles, but to me it feels like it's different enough that he's almost rejoicing that he gets to explain the deeper doctrines of Christ rather than having to go over all of the sins that the people that he's writing to have committed. He gets to talk about what to him must be a very pleasing word of God. Now along those lines, I think I should mention it actually is controversial in the world of biblical scholarship that Paul wrote the letter to the Ephesians. Uh, If you remember when we studied Isaiah, there is a popular theory that the book of Isaiah was written by two or even three uh, different writers. First of all, the historical Isaiah, and then what is called Deutero-Isaiah, or the second Isaiah, somebody who was a follower along the Isaiah school of thought, but came much later. And that's because their historical Uh, details that are included in the book of Isaiah that come later that Isaiah couldn't possibly, quote-unquote, have known. And that is a controversy as well. Obviously, if you believe in prophecy, uh, you don't have as much problem with him including details from the future. And uh, and there's even a Trito-Isaiah theory. And, And most scholars agree that Isaiah wrote all of it, but there is a sizable contingent that believe that there are are two or more people writing in the book of Isaiah. Well, the simil- a similar situation governs in the, the epistles of Paul. There are some epistles that there are a sizable contingent of scholars, not less than half, but certainly um, a large minority, that believe that Ephesians, Colossians, and perhaps a couple of others were written by a Deutero-Paul, a second Paul, somebody who is of the Pauline school of thought, but maybe came 
three or four decades later or even 50 years later and wanted to perhaps expound on the doctrines of Paul or perhaps add his own spin or perhaps have, a, have an epistle that was generally known to his own city. And I think I should say that um, there is no external evidence for this theory, that the evidence is all internal to the epistle. And it usually takes the form of Paul wouldn't have written like this. Paul doesn't sound like this in other places. And so they have various evidences for it. My own opinion on this, my, my expertise is not great enough in any way to, to weigh in on the actual controversy, but my own opinion is that in the, in the absence of overwhelming evidence, I might as well proceed as if Paul wrote this because, uh, number one, most of the gospel scholars agree that he did, and number two, there doesn't really seem to be any profit in assuming that this is non-scriptural or, or didn't come from God. And certainly, the claim inside the epistle is that Paul himself wrote it, not only because he says that I'm, I'm writing this, I, Paul, am writing this right at the beginning, but also he gives, uh, he, re- he relates experiences of receiving the revelations that he did from God and talks about himself as the least of the apostles or the least of the members of Christ, as he has done on other occasions. And so uh, having, having read and studied this in preparation for this podcast in great detail, I feel like it's most profitable for me to ignore that at this point, at least until we would receive more evidence, uh, ignore that controversy, and just assume that Paul really did write these this, uh, this letter and the one we'll study next week, which is Colossians. They are disputed, their authorship is disputed for the same reasons. To accept them uh, until more more knowledge would come to light, and I don't think it will. It's my opinion that Paul did write these, but I thought I should mention it. It's a well-known controversy. So beginning in Ephesians chapter 1, Paul begins with his greeting as he normally does, and then he he goes into what's called a doxology. Now, we've mentioned doxologies before. Doxology is a hymn of praise to God, and I want to mention this one because, first of all, it's so eloquent. It's amazing, and secondly, the eloquence of Paul is right in line. It fits, it fits, much as we've described Jesus as being the culmination of the Hebrew prophets, somebody who's very much in the pattern of an Old Testament Hebrew prophet, uh, the doxologies of Paul, which with which he usually begins either a doxology or a prayer of thanksgiving, uh, he usually begins his epistles with one of those. This one is so long, there are only three periods in the entire first chapter of Ephesians. There are three long sentences to cover 23 verses. It's, it's what you would normally render in several paragraphs. <laughs> so that this is what one of the things that led Peter in his uh, epistles to exclaim that you know Paul is hard to understand. So this is what's going on in chapter 1 here. Paul is waxing very eloquent, but it's also very much in line with the doxologies found in the Psalms and in the other writings of the Hebrew prophets this is Paul taking his place among them, and so I recommend this doxology to you. It's verses 3 through 14, until you see that second period there. And uh, it, he talks about how God has given us the, the riches of his grace. One word I want to draw attention to in verse 5 is predestinated. So, first of all, God has chosen us from before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. That's verse 4. And then in verse 5, having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself. 
So God chose us from before the foundation of the world. We were predestined to receive this adoption into the family of Christ. And I wanted to talk a little bit about that word predestinated as it appears in the King James Version. The, the Greek word, it, it, you can actually, sort just knowing a tiny bit of Greek, you can understand this word and make your own translation. And the tiny bit of Greek you need to know is that the, the prefix pro in Greek actually means pre in English. So the, the word is pro-orizo, and um, that orizo is O-R-I-Z-O, but if you render it without the prefix, it's H-O-R-I-Z-O. And you can guess from that what this word means. It's very closely related to the English word horizon. So God has pre-horizoned us. The word predestinated has a very mixed history. There were actually, in the early history of the United States, and also in Europe among the later Protestant traditions, there were a number of sects that believed that predestination was supported by the epistles of Paul, was supported by the New Testament, the idea that God had elected certain people, those who believed in Christ had elected them to their status, and therefore, uh, who are we to... Number one, he had blessed certain people with earthly prosperity, and who are we to reclaim against the judgments of God? Our place is just to accept our lot in life. And if you are like me, you hear echoes in this of from the Book of Mormon, this idea of from the Zoramites when uh, Alma went among them to teach and he found them worshiping in a place and they had a they had a stand in their synagogue that was called a Ramiumptum. They would ascend there on their on their day of worship and they would say, God, we thank you that you have elected us. You've chosen us to be different from our brethren and that we have received your words and that we are saved and that we aren't like them who will be cast forever into hell. The the idea that there is no agency, there's no moral agency in the plan of God, that God has predestinated certain people to salvation and certain people to damnation. Uh, that if, if that were a doctrine of belief, that would be an incredibly disabusing, it would be an incredibly unaffecting doctrine. It would turn so many people off. And in fact, there is a doctrine that resembles that today. We don't have too many Christian sects that are still popular that are preaching this doctrine of predestination. But we do have a, this doctrine does exist, and it's not a religious doctrine. It's actually a secular doctrine. The idea, modern philosophers are beginning to agree, and they're, they're beginning to realize that if they follow the idea that God does not exist, there absolutely is no God. Not, we don't know whether there's a God but the affirmative doctrine that there is no God, if you follow that to its conclusion, uh, basically you have separated yourself from the idea of a soul. So the, the human secular philosophers and religious philosophers, they agree on this, that people are made up of dust from the ground. I mean, we, we come from plants, we eat plants, our, our mothers eat plants when they're forming our bodies, and the plants are grown from, from dirt. And so, therefore, our bodies are made from dust, and we are just meat. And if there, if there doesn't exist something in me, if, if Mark is just a piece of meat, then Mark has no moral agency. There's not anything in, in my body, in Mark, that is separate from just the meat, from just the dust. If there's nothing there, then I don't actually have a choice in what I'm doing. Now, we can agree that far, and what uh, the secular philosophers today are saying is 
That is true. There is nothing separate from your dust, from your meat, and therefore you are, don't actually have agency. What you have is the illusion of agency. And that is actually a popular doctrine today. That, that's the atheist, uh, that's, that is on the cutting edge of atheist philosophy, is that we all of us are laboring under this illusion that we have moral agency to make choices, that we have a self, that we have self-awareness. These are all illusions, and we are, all of our actions have actually been predetermined millennia, eons ago by the random collisions of different molecules that created that first created life and from that time to this all of the interactions between atoms has led inexorably to you and I pretending that we have moral agency that we have self-awareness and on the other end of the spectrum is the philosophy that there is something within us that is separate. There is a creator, and then we each have us have a soul that we carry around that inhabits this dust, this meat that we call our bodies. And therefore, there is something more to us, and we do have free will. We do have choices throughout life. And that's very important when we talk about this word predestinated, because uh, we are not predestinated. The, the gospel of Jesus Christ, the restored church of Jesus Christ, teaches predestination is not a thing that Paul meant. So going back to this word of Greek, we are pre-horizoned by God. Uh, the way th that LDS scholars and prophets have chosen to render this word is foreordained, and that is just as valid a translation of this word pro-orizo. And foreordained means that God has given us an ordination that we may or may not choose to fulfill during this life. And uh, the, the, the word pre-horizoned is, is so apt, it's, it's so descriptive of what the meaning is, that it's very helpful to understand that's where it comes from, because God has given us a set of horizons that we can look out to, and we can aspire to reach, and we can struggle to reach and reach, that because he has appointed those bounds unto us, and he has given us the desires to reach them. And whether we, whether we do or not, it's almost like uh, saying to a captain of a sailing ship, you, it's already known, it's already determined where you're going to sail. And that captain looks out and says, no, I have, I have all of these horizons where I can sail to. You haven't dictated anything. All you've given me is the horizon that I can look upon. That's a very helpful uh, understanding of what that word means. So there, there is no predestination. That was the way that the King James Version was rendered, and unfortunately, uh, that English rendering of a Greek word led many people to believe that they didn't have, that God had told them that they didn't have free will. And this is a, this is a heresy, this is a false doctrine that has endured across many generations and across many continents, and as we see both from European and modern American history and from the Book of Mormon itself. So that's, that's one uh, word that we pulled out of this doxology of Paul. But I recommend you read this, verses 3 through 14 in Ephesians 1. It's a fascinating letter of praise. It's a fascinating poem of praise in the Hebrew. Even though it was originally written in Greek, we have no doubt of that. Um, Paul's mind was so caught up in the Hebrew scriptures that this is very much in the Hebrew tradition of the Hebrew prophets that, of the Old Testament that Paul was so deeply grounded in, and we'll see more examples of that as we continue. Another word I want to pull out of this chapter is the word mystery from verse 9, and the way Paul says it is, having made known unto us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, 
which he hath purposed in himself. And so Paul talks in a couple of different places, first here and then later in chapter 3, about this mystery, the secret will of God, his plan for the human race that has been kept secret from the foundations of the world until the time of Christ's resurrection, at which point he made this mystery known, and he made it known unto Paul, among other people. And in verse 10, he explains what it is, that in the dispensation of the fullness of times, he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both both which are in heaven and which are on earth, even in him, in whom also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestinated, there's that word again, according to the purpose of him who worketh all things after the counsel of his own will. So the mystery is that God is going to gather together in one all things in Christ. And that what exactly he means by that we'll discover later in chapter 3. But that's the point. And we get, we get a lot of, as we'll see, we get a lot of our modern-day, Latter-day Saint terminology from Paul in general and from Ephesians in particular. First of all, this, uh, this phrase right here, you can see it in verse 10, the dispensation of the fullness of times. We hear that a lot. We're going to talk, when we get to chapter 3, we're going to talk about what the word dispensation means. And uh, we also have, number one, the, perfection, the perfecting of the saints. That's also one of the threefold mission of the, missions of the church. And we'll discuss what that exactly what that means, the context in which that uh, language, that phrase was first delivered and what Paul meant by it, and what we should mean by it. And one more phrase we can draw attention to here in chapter 1, in verse 18, the eyes of your understanding be enlightened. That, to me, has echoes in Doctrine and Covenants 110. The veil was taken from our minds, and the eyes of our understanding were opened. uh, Joseph Smith, obviously, it's throughout all of his discourses. He obviously was very steeped in the language of the New Testament in the in the Pauline epistles because you see it show up in so many different places. And one of them is in DNC 110 where he says, uh, where he echoes this phrase, the eyes of your understanding being, being enlightened or opened. And Paul and Joseph Smith found themselves in many similar situations. And, and I think... Uh, Joseph Smith must have felt a great affinity for Paul. In fact, on one occasion, he explained that he, or he gave to understand that he had received a visitation from Paul, that he knew his physical appearance because he had seen him. And I believe that Joseph Smith felt like um, Paul was one of the few people that could truly understand what he was going through because Paul had been through it all himself. And we see, so that's why we see so many echoes of uh, Paul's language in the teachings of the prophet Joseph Smith. So as we go on to chapter 2, I'm going to explain the greater structure of this whole letter, and that is that Paul first, in in chapters 1 through 3, he first explains all of the things that God has done for us, all of the many ways in which he's blessed us, and the mighty rewards that come to us simply as a result of Christ having come to the earth and died for us and all of the ways in which he's affected our lives. And then in the beginning of chapter 4, we have this wonderful word, therefore, and it, it connects the first part with the second part, which is, therefore, we should all do these particular things. We should all follow this, this set of actions because of everything that Christ has done for us, that God has done for us through Christ. And so in, uh, keep that in mind as we go into chapter 2. 
he Paul began in chapter one talking about the the greatness of God and his mystery, his plan to bring us all to bring all things together in one through Christ and the blessings that we receive through through Christ. And he continues explaining that uh, all the way through the end of chapter three. So chapter two, Paul explains that God's it's God's grace that takes us all from this through the same process from death to life in the same by the same power that resurrected Christ from death to life. We've all been brought into this life. Uh, he describes the the nature or the the life the kind of life that the Ephesians were leading before he Paul brought the gospel unto them, and he describes it as death in the course of this world, the lusts of our flesh, and the fact that we've all been converted and changed, and that is a a manifestation of the power of the resurrection. Isn't that interesting that Paul would describe this as having been brought from death to life? We know that Restored doctrine teaches very much the same thing, that it is, it, we call this separation from God, we call it by the name of spiritual death. And this is Paul uh, introducing this concept to the Ephesians. And then he starts talking, in verse 11, he starts talking about the division, as he often does, the division that exists between those of the uncircumcision and those of the circumcision, and how the, the Jews who have converted to Christ will see those Gentiles converting to Christ as, as a different people. And Paul is saying uh, in verse 13, Now in Christ Jesus, ye who sometimes were far off are made nigh by the blood of Christ. He is our peace, verse 14 now, who hath made both one, hath broken down the middle wall of partition between us, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, even the law of commandments contained in ordinances, for to make himself of twain one new man, so making peace, that he might reconcile both unto God in one body by the cross, having slain the enmity thereby. So uh, in a very eloquent analogy, he talks about how Jesus has put to rest all of the divisions that exist between people. And this is important because for the entirety of the Old Testament history, the, the people, uh, the Jews, the people of Israel, were a separate people, and they were called upon to be separate. And this is the mystery. We're going to talk a little bit more about uh, what that mystery means. But this is the mystery of the intention of God throughout human history is that he had always intended to make everyone one, all people one, and bring them all together into the new Jerusalem. This is very much in line with the teachings of the prophet Isaiah. And in fact, every one of the prophets that talked about the new Jerusalem and the gathering of all things, they talked about foreigners and strangers being made part of the people of Israel. And so it doesn't mean that Israel is going to abandon the teachings of Yahweh. What it means is that it was never meant to be confined to only one nation. It was just that it was meant to be preserved through one nation, and then all people would eventually be joined when the time was right, or as as Paul calls it, in the fullness of times. That's what fullness of time means. Fullness, as you recall, we've talked about the word abundance, and the word abundance and fullness are the same word. It means there's more than enough. In the fullness of times means when the time is exactly right, when it fits God's purposes. It's translated in many translations as uh, at the appropriate time. So in the, in the fullness of times, all things would be made one, and all nations that were uh, in former times excluded from the truth that was revealed by the prophets of the Israelites, 
that all people that were excluded would be made and into one people. And here is Paul describing that this has happened, that Christ has brought down the wall, he has slain the enmity in his own death on the cross. And that's chapter 2. And so here in chapter 3, Paul says, For this cause, I, Paul, the prisoner of Jesus Christ, for you Gentiles. Now, Paul describes himself here and in chapter 4, uh, I, therefore, the prisoner of the Lord. In, that's verse, chapter 4, verse 1. Uh, Paul says, uh, I, I guess this might be the reason why tradition has that Paul has written this letter, the Ephesians, from prison. That when he's imprisoned in later years in Rome, and this is after the end of the book of Acts, that uh, because Paul, in, if you recall, the end of the book of Acts has Paul in a form of house arrest in Rome. And that doesn't match him being a prisoner. So the tradition is that uh, on his second visit, visit to Rome years later, when he would eventually, which would eventually end with his execution, that Paul has written this letter to the Ephesians. Now, Paul lived among the Ephesians first for a couple of months and then for three years, we have recorded in the book of Acts. And uh, the, the events in the, at that time were that, that he eventually had to leave because he had converted so many people to the gospel that the Demetrius, one of the silversmiths, whose occupation it was to make these little silver shrines of the Greek goddess of Artemis, who is called Diana by the Romans, that uh, he got all the silversmiths together and said, these Christians are going to put us out of business because they don't love our goddess Diana, whom we love so much. And so anyone they incited anyone who loved Diana to rebel against the doctrine of Paul and to put these Christians out of the out of the city and they they all gathered in the theater if you remember from Acts chapter 19 and uh, finally one of the one of the magistrates had to come and calm down the crowd and say look it's not legal for us to to treat someone in this way but uh, Paul had already been whisked away by his followers he wanted to go talk to him and they would have killed him probably and his followers whisked him away, and he left the he left the city at that point. And he he visited, possibly passed through a couple more times, but he passed nearby several times. And we have in the book of Acts uh, one of the accounts where he passed nearby, and he had the leaders come unto him, and he gave them his final exhortations as he was on his way to Jerusalem, where he would be taken prisoner. So that's the story of the book of Ephesians. And here's in in chapter three, verse one. Here's Paul describing that he's the prisoner of Christ. Now, elsewhere, he has called himself a slave of Christ. And this was a metaphorical way in which Paul was making known that I am not as notable, I am not as personally impressive in my bearing, in my clothing, in my, in my economic success, as some of the other teachers that you may really like, that you may favor. Because That's because I'm a slave of Christ. I follow him not, not to serve my own will. I follow him not only in the sense that I teach what he taught, but that I live the life that he lived, which is one of humility and being despised by the powers that be. So, uh, the only evidence we have that Paul was in prison in the, among the Romans was, are the traditions. And these are old traditions, but they, they may come from the text itself. And it may be that Paul was again speaking metaphorically. I'm a prisoner of Jesus Christ in the same way that I'm a slave of Jesus Christ. I am held captive by his doctrine. I can never do any other thing except that which he has called me to do. Uh, it's up to you to decide. Now, here's that word again in verse 2. 
Here's that word of dispensation. We're going to talk about the two meanings of dispensation. If ye have heard of the dispensation of the grace of God, which is given me to you, word, or given, given me towards you, how that revelation he made known unto me the mystery, as I wrote before. So, the dispensation of the grace of God. Uh, this word dispensation is oikonomia, which is uh, translated in many places as administration or stewardship. And that is how we receive it in the book of Luke. And so dispensation basically means that Paul has been given special instructions. He's been given a stewardship over the administration of a particular job. This is the way uh, the word dispensation is used, incidentally, in the Catholic Church. If, if you need an exception in the rules to be made in your case, for example, um, if you've ever seen the movie A Man for All Seasons, the, Henry VIII is trying to get the Pope to recognize that he has the right to uh, a divorce so that he can marry someone else. He wants to produce an heir. And the, the discussion at the beginning of that movie is that he needs a dispensation from the Pope. So he needs a special administration. He needs a stewardship from the Pope that, he, that there is a special uh, exception in this circumstance. And that is this, and so many times there's spoken of in, the, in Catholic doctrine a dispensation from the Pope, or the Pope has granted me a dispensation. And that is actually a correct use of the word. But Paul is saying, I've received uh, a, a dispensation of the grace of God from God himself, and he has made known it unto me by revelation, the mystery, which we'll talk about again. Now, that's one special meaning of the word dispensation. The, the more general meaning, this is like a secondary meaning, the more general meaning is in chapter 1, where Paul says, the dispensation of the fullness of times. But they both proceed from the same understanding, which is, that God would make an, a, a time for the administration among men, a stewardship. And so in the general sense, the dispensation of fullness of times is when a certain set of rules from God reigns on the earth. Uh, a certain stewardship is given unto people on earth to obey God in. A certain set of commandments and revelations and prophets is given to them. And that is their dispensation. And a dispensation can also be given individually to a person, as Paul describes. And so the Latter-day Saints have one use that we make of this word, and Catholics have another, and turns out they're both correct, that, that the word can be used generally for people all over, the, all over the earth, that we all have a dispensation from God, and that it also can be used specifically that Paul himself had a dispensation from God. To, to take his particular doctrine and preach it among the Gentiles. So what is this mystery? What, what was the reason for Paul's dispensation? And the mist, So we talked a little bit about it before, that all things would be brought together in one through Christ. So now we're going to learn a little bit more about what the mystery is. What, is. what is the great secret of God's intention towards mankind that has been kept hidden from the foundation of the world until Paul, and here he explains it. I mean, I hope I have you on, on the edge of your seat. And that was Paul's intention towards the Ephesians. So chapter 3, verse 3. How that by revelation he made known unto me the mystery, as I wrote before in a few words, whereby when ye read, you may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ, 
which in other ages was not made known unto the sons of men, as it is now revealed unto his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit, that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs, and of the same body, and partakers of his promised promise in Christ by the gospel. So there's the mystery. The, and we, we've... Uh, We've already explained that many of the Hebrew prophets, it's, it's not a total mystery, right? They explained that in, in the fullness of times, that all people would be brought together in one. But that is the mystery, according to Paul, that we were nev- there was never meant to be a separation among people, that all people were always meant to receive the salvation of God and to receive the gospel, the good news that God would be that God would come unto us, that he would save us all. And if you think about it, Paul is the perfect messenger of this mystery because he is the one that God gave the special calling to, his dispensation, to spend the rest of his life preaching to the Gentiles, or as he puts it, to make, in verse 9, chapter uh, 3 of Ephesians, verse 9, to make all men see what is the fellowship of the mystery, which from the beginning of the world hath been hid in God, who created all things by Jesus Christ to the intent that now unto the principalities and powers in heavenly places might be known by the church the manifold wisdom of God, according to the eternal purpose which he purposed in Christ Jesus our Lord. So he's saying that, look, all of us are one in Christ. We are one people, as he'll talk about in, uh, as we continue. And we should not continue, perpetuate these separations that have existed, if you understand the love of Christ as he describes in verse 17 and how deep it is in verse 18, the breadth and the length and the depth and the height of the love of Christ, if you know that love which passeth knowledge, then you would be all be filled with the fullness of God and you would, ne- you would not anymore think about how people need to be separated into circumcised, uncircumcised, Jew, Gentile, Christian, non-believer. You would all recognize that Christ is reaching out his hand now in, unto the entirety of the earth, unto all nations. And he wants them all to become one and flow unto him. The time, he's, Paul is saying, in some extent, he's saying, it is the fullness of times for, at least for that manifestation of the Spirit. And now we, now we uh, continue into chapter 4 and we read in verse 1, this wonderful word, therefore. So we've been receiving, number one, all of the things that God has done for us. And number two, the intentions that God has had for us as people of the earth all along. So he's, he's created all these wonderful blessings from the creation down to the atonement, and he's also had these intentions for us that we would all be gathered in and saved through Christ. Therefore, uh, Paul, the prisoner of the Lord, he beseeches us that we walk worthy of the vocation wherewith we are called. Okay, so we want, Paul wants to create unity. Now, uh, a phrase that is used a lot in evangelical and Protestant Christianity is that unity is not uniformity, and that comes from this chapter, Ephesians chapter 4. So, Paul begins by talking about unity. In verse 3, he says, "...endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body, one Spirit, even as you are called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. So this is unity. Paul is describing in verses 3 through 6 why we are all one, because we have one uh, of so many things. There's one God. We're all baptized the same way. And then in verse 7 he says, But unto every one of us is given grace according to the measure of the gift of Christ. Wherefore he saith, when he ascendeth up on high, he led captivity captive, and gave gifts 
unto men. So in verse 11, he continues this idea. He gave some apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers. And in other words, there is, as he's explained in other places in, the, in 1 Corinthians, most notably, there, there is a multiplicity of gifts of God, but there is one of so many things. So we have unity in Christ. We have unity of all these ways that I've explained. But we also know that we have a multiplicity of gifts. And, that, and that's where the saying comes from, that unity is not uniformity. He explained this very idea in that wonderful metaphor in 1 Corinthians 13, that we're all part of the body of Christ, but we all are different parts of the body of Christ. So a toe is not an eye, but both are necessary. And a hand is not a head, but if you don't have a hand, you can't work. And if you don't have a head, you can't think. And so all of these things are so important, and they're also different. They're one in that they're part of the same body, and they're different in that they are different parts of that body. Now, the, the, the reason for those differences, Paul gives as for the perfecting of the saints. Now we're in verse 12 of Ephesians 4. So Paul has given, or uh, God has given all this multiplicity of gifts for the perfecting of the saints. In the past, when we've talked about this word being perfect, uh, it's usually related to the Greek word of telos or telios. And that has to do with uh, an overarching purpose. Uh, there was a talk, and I believe it was by Elder Gong, in this uh, general conference of last weekend, where he talks about a, an acorn dropping to the ground. Now, you could look at an acorn and not see in it any echo of an oak tree. But if you know what an acorn does... It grows into something quite different than an acorn. Now, an acorn always has within it the oak tree. That's the idea of telos, that we all have a purpose. And so being perfected is not the, having an acorn that doesn't have any flaws. It's that the acorn fulfills its purpose. It becomes the oak. Um, so normally when we talk about perfecting, we're talking about that. Uh, in English, perf perfect means there could be no change. There, there could be no, not the slightest thing could be made better. Something is already as good as it can be in every possible way. That's what it means to be perfect in English. But in Greek, what it means to be perfect is to have accomplished one's telos. This word, now having explained all of that, this word actually doesn't come from telos. The, the word perfecting in uh, Ephesians 4, chapter 12, and this is, fascinating. Uh, it comes from a word that you probably will recognize when I say the Greek word. It comes from a word, katartismos. Uh, yes, this has the same root as catharsis. So what, what katartismos means is actually, uh, well, to explain what it means, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you a little personal story. My, uh, I have a brother-in-law who is a very skilled skier, and his whole life, uh, especially when he was young, he was absolutely fanatic about skiing. And when he, uh, when he was a little bit older, he would find children's skis in a swap meet or in a, th in a pawn shop, and he would buy them. And then at the end of the year, he'd have this big sale where he'd, uh, he'd put just tables and tables out on his driveway, and he'd, he'd advertise it in the newspaper, and people would show up, and he'd make, uh, he'd make tens of thousands of dollars in the month of December outfitting children with... Uh, skis, boots, poles, and jackets and everything. And people would come up and for a, for a fixed price, they'd get everything. And when he'd adjust, he'd adjust these skis as part of his sale. He'd adjust these skis for the families that came in, for the children. And when, when he got them perfectly adjusted, he would say, now those skis are dialed in. 
He was also really into mountain biking, and he'd go to a pawn shop, and he'd buy a bike, and he would take the parts from it, and he'd put it on his bike, and he'd take the parts from his bike, and he'd put it on this bike he bought, until he had the best possible components on his bike, always getting updated, and then he'd sell that original bike for, for what he bought it for, so he'd update his bike for free, and he called it dialed in. He would dial in all of the settings on his bike, and, and that phrase uh, I associate with him always, and um, that phrase is pretty much what the that's the closest way i can think to encapsulate what the meaning of is, uh, meaning is of catartismos now the word the modern word catharsis means a release of emotions it often comes through therapy or perhaps even through watching a movie or in uh, ancient greece watching a play so theater the goal of theater was to produce this catartismos this releasing this adjusting and um those, those words are related, but not the same. And uh, that was an adjustment of the emotions. That was a preparation. That was uh, a perfecting in the sense that you had something, you had pressure built up, and now it was released. It, you had let off the steam by releasing these emotions through your catharsis. And the, the preparation that occurs with a catartismos is actually a, an equipping so if you think about it, it's very similar to dialing in your skis or dialing in the components on your mountain bike. You have equipped this mountain bike. Now, you don't do that. You don't do that sort of preparation so that you can then take the skis home and put them on, uh, in, the, in the corner and lean them against the wall where they sit all year. You do it so that you can go skiing. So it's equipping in preparation for a greater work that is to come. That is the idea that comes with the, the perfection of the saints. Now, this is the phrase that gives the name to one of the, the missions of the church. And so often we think, gosh, the perfection of the saints is a mission that we will never, ever accomplish. And the fact is, if you understand what catartismos means, what Paul was actually saying, you'll realize we're accomplishing that mission each and every day. We are always preparing the saints. We're dialing them in. Each time we minister to each other, each time we teach each other, we are perfecting the saints. We are preparing them for a great work, which is to come. Their skis meant to be skied on. Their mountain bikes meant to be mountain biked on. And uh, the, what is the preparation? What is the work that we're all being prepared for? Uh, if, you, if you were watching the same general conference that I did, you would have heard uh, President Nelson talked several times about how we are all being prepared for this wonderful day when Christ will return again. And we're not just being prepared for that day. We are being prepared for the preparation for that day. Uh, and, and I'll explain what that means, that in the time coming up to the second coming of Jesus Christ, there will be much to do. And obviously when Christ comes, that's not the end of our labors. We don't just sit down and then say, okay, Christ is here. We're all, we're, we're all going to relax from here on. That, that's when the work really begins of reaching out to the rest of the world. Um, this, this making of one, this, this abolishing of walls, this slaying of enmity will actually begin anew. It will take on a new dimension at the second coming of Christ because there will be so much of the world that has not yet accepted him. And the people who are prepared, who, who need to do that work, are the kingdom of God on the earth, right? Are the saints of the latter days. And so therefore, there's a ton of preparation that needs to be done 
for that day. We have to be ready to take on this incredible task that will be before us. And therefore, we have a huge task before us right now, which is to prepare. All of those things are involved in the perfecting of the saints. So when you hear the word perfecting, you can think of two things. You can think of the telos, which is an acorn becoming an oak tree. And you can think of the katartismos, which is the, the dialing in of a piece of equipment. And that's very much what it means is we're being equipped, we're being prepared, we're being taught, and we're being strengthened and fortified so that we can go out and do the work that is before us. So um, I, I wanted to talk about one general conference talk, and this is, uh, I believe it was in the general women's session. Sister Alberto said this. She said, um, in, the, in the ways that we unnecessarily torment ourselves, she said, we put unnecessary burdens on ourselves thinking we need to be perfect now. And the, the sadness, the, the tragedy of that phenomenon is that we didn't have to do it. It's a misunderstanding. It's a mistranslation of the word catartismos and telos into perfection, right? The, the truth is we do have the promise from God that we will be perfected by him in the English sense of the word, eventually, as, as Elder Holland has so eloquently taught us in the past. But right now, our job is not to be perfect. Our job is to try to accomplish our purpose and then to prepare ourselves. Those are the two words that are translated into perfection that in the New Testament. And so the perfection of the saints doesn't mean that there would be nothing about you that can be changed. It would mean that you're preparing yourself to do a great work. So just to read this, uh, these few verses, uh, in Ephesians 4, starting in verse 12, for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. And in other words, God, God gave us all these different gifts for the perfecting of the saints. Till we all come in the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect man, unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. And in verse 13, the, the perfect as an adjective, teleon, is, is uh, this word now is the different word in Greek related to telos. So in verse 12, we have katartismos, and in verse 13, we have telos. God, or Christ, has perfected himself. He has attained his purpose. And so we have these two meanings of the word perfect in successive verses. And God is going to do all these things in verse 14, so that we henceforth be no more children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the slight of men and cunning craftiness. But in verse 15, speaking the truth in love, we may grow up into him in all things, which is the head, even Christ. And now he uses this, uh, this metaphor, from whom the whole body fitly joined together and compacted by that which every joint supplieth. So now he's, once again, he's relating all of us to the parts of a body. And God is the, Christ is the head. When, it, when he talks about us being a building, Christ is the chief cornerstone. When he talks about us being a body, Christ is the head, and we're all the individual parts. So you can't say that the parts of a building don't need to be there, but also there is one part of the body that joins everything, which is uh, the head. And there's one part of the building that's most important, supports it all, which is the chief cornerstone. And so he's saying that the body is fitly joined together. And this is a, a, rem, a reminiscent of an earlier verse in chapter 2, where he says in uh, verse, this actually begins in verse 19. We're going to go back briefly to chapter 2, Ephesians chapter 2. In verse 19, when, when Paul was getting to the fact that we're all unified, he says, therefore, you're no more strangers and foreigners. You're not 
and strangers had a very specific meaning among the Israelites. It meant those who are outside of the people of Israel. And those, those people who come in who are strangers among us, we have uh, an obligation of hospitality toward them, but they are strangers. They are not part of the people of Israel. They're not part of God's people. And Paul is saying, those days are over. Ye are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints of the household of God. You're built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom all the building fitly framed together groweth unto an holy temple in the Lord. So in chapter 4, he says, we are all fitly joined together into a body in Christ, and he's the head. And in chapter 2, he says, we're all part of this building, which Jesus Christ is the chief cornerstone, and we're fitly framed together. So fitly joined together, fitly framed together. God has perfectly managed to put all of these people together according to his mystery, which is his hidden intention for us all along, that we would all become one. So that's God's secret. And it's a secret that is still being kept today because we all refuse to acknowledge that God has this intention towards all of us. He has a plan for our lives where he's going to join us and make us all into one. And what is the result of that? We're all going to be one body of Christ, meaning one congregation of believers, and we're also all going to be one temple. And what is the temple? The temple is that, that overlapping of earthly space and heavenly space of God's, God's mind and man's mind, that Christ embodied the idea of the temple. Christ was the incarnation of this very idea, which was that there is some room for overlap between God and man. There, there is a natural correspondence. There is a place where we come together, and that is where we are able to acknowledge God's will within us and accept his mastery over us, and that's the overlapping. And that's, that's what Christ symbolized. And that's what the temple symbolized. So all of us grow, when we are willing to be fitly framed together, we grow to a holy temple. So it's, it's only in the, to the extent that we become one, that we become a temple of God, that we can actually overlap with his will, that we become holy, that he can take us out of the, out of the, the ruling place of the earth, the idea that earthly passions would govern us. But when we become one, God can make us into a temple and raise us to the place where heavenly passions will govern us. And that's what Paul means in Ephesians 4.13 when he says, Till we all come in the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect man. Now, is he speaking there of Christ when he says unto a perfect man? Or is he saying we will all become a perfect man, as he put it, perfect men and women? unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. My opinion is that he's saying, we will all come up to reach our telos when we reach the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. So he's, he's giving us a challenge there, which is he's telling us what our telos is. He's saying, if we are the acorns, Christ is the oak tree, and we can eventually reach it. We, we, we were planted to be oak trees. We weren't intended to be acorns. Acorn isn't the final state of what we are. We are in. We are gods in embryo. We are this. We are followers of Christ. We are. Christ is our exemplar. We could see in Him what an oak tree looks like, but we ourselves are mere acorns that have this wonderful hope, this wonderful telos. And Paul spends the rest of chapter four talking about the difference between the the old man and the new man. The the people that the Ephesians were before they learned about Christ. Um, 
in verse 22, he, t- he says, starts in 21, If so be that ye have heard him and have been taught by him, as the truth is in Jesus, that ye put off concerning the former conversation, the old man, which is corrupt according to the deceitful lusts. Be renewed in the spirit of your mind. Put on the new man, which after God is created in righteousness and true holiness. So this is our job. Because God has had this wonderful plan, because he's given us so many blessings and sent Jesus to earth, and he's also had this intention towards us. This is what he talked about in chapters 1 through 3. Because God has done these things, that our job is to, number one, be one with each other, and number two, be reborn in newness of life. So we, God has this desire that he would create of us one body, one temple, and then we therefore have to put off, we have to be willing to be united, and we have to put off the old man. Those, so those are the two things that God did, and these are the two things that we have to do. This is, this is Paul's logical explanation of how God relates to us. And, and uh, it's almost like a syllogism, you know, Paul has had his Greek upbringing, and so he's using logic as, the, as would have totally appealed to the Greeks. Look at what God has done, therefore, look at what we now have in front of us to do. So in chapter uh, 5, Paul continues, the first part of that chapter, he continues what he's talking about in chapter 4. We're going to put away all of these things. Be followers of God as dear children. Walk in love as Christ also hath loved us. So this theme of the love of God now is what uh, Paul is is beginning to change into. The, the love of God is going to motivate us to make all these changes that we need to make. In verse, in verse 14, uh, we have this interesting verse. Paul has, so Paul has explained all of these changes that we need to make. Uh, for example, in, in verse 11, Have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather reprove them. Uh, so in verse 14, he says, Wherefore, he saith, Awaketh, Awake, thou that sleepest, and arise from the dead, and Christ shall give thee light. Now, what does this verse mean? First of all, Paul seems to be quoting. He says, "Wherefore he saith, who is he?" Uh, it's an interesting. It's an interesting verse. I, I did a little bit of research, and to the best I can come up with, this is a reference to uh, the book of Isaiah, chapter sixty, verse one. And this is a, a verse that is very well known. In fact, uh, it's it's been immortalized in the. Uh, handles Messiah when he says, Arise, shine, for thy light is come. So that's the verse. Arise, shine, for thy light is come, and the glory of the Lord is risen upon thee. So uh, if you if you remember, that's um, the particular part of the Messiah that sings, of Handel's Messiah that sings about this is, uh, O thou who bringest good tidings to, to Zion, arise, shine, for thy light is come. And that's uh, Isaiah 60, verse 1. And Paul doesn't say, the prophet Isaiah says this. So it's not a marked quotation. Uh, And these are, remember, these are Gentiles that Paul is speaking to. So is Paul, in fact, the question is, is Paul, in fact, quoting Isaiah chapter 60, verse 1 here? I believe he is. And if he is, he's expecting that his Gentile audience would know the Hebrew scriptures well enough that he doesn't need to say anything more. So wherefore, he saith, Awake thou that sleepeth, arise from the dead, and Christ shall give thee light. Now, the context of that verse in Isaiah is that Jehovah, 
thy light is come, Jehovah is the Redeemer, and Jehovah or Yahweh is going to give them light. Awake, rise, for thy light is come, the thou that bringest good tidings to Zion, the messenger. And the messenger or the servant is understood alternatively to be Yahweh or the, the Redeemer of Israel or to be Israel itself. Um, the servant or the, the messenger is understood in both ways. And what Paul is saying is Christ is Yahweh. He's saying he's making a number of claims here. If he's in fact quoting Isaiah chapter 60, verse 1, he's saying Christ is Yahweh and you are the people of Israel, you Gentiles. We are all the people of God now. We have all been brought into one. We are all the servant of God. So this, that's the, uh, the antecedent there of Isaiah, of Isaiah saying, Arise, shine, for thy light has come. He's saying, uh, if you're the servant of God, then it's time to wake up and arise. So interesting, all of the ways in which Paul can bring in all of these uh, complicated concepts with one simple quotation. And he can teach us about the people he's talking to at the same time, because for them to receive this allusion to the Old Testament, they would have had to be as steeped in it as he was. And Paul, we can assume, Paul would have had it, large portions of it at least, totally committed to memory. And if he is, in fact, in prison writing this letter, he wouldn't have had access to the scrolls of Isaiah or any other scriptures for that matter. He would have had to pull this from his memory. And as we'll see, he pulls many different chapters of Isaiah later on that have the same idea and puts them all together in a wonderful way when he talks about the armor of God. There's at least four passages in Isaiah where he talks about either arm the the feelings that we have towards God being either an armor or a weapon. And Paul brings those all together in just a few verses. And we can presume that he wrote these from memory in prison, and therefore he understood uh, the he had spent so much time, as Jesus said, treasuring up the words of life that had been given him in the very hour, what he would say. And this is the, the point I'm trying to make with all of this is, this is the strongest argument for us to study the scriptures regularly, which is there's no substitute for putting into our minds constantly the, the words of eternal life. We have to treasure them up continually, because if we do, then it can be given us in the very hour what we're going to say. Then, then when the time comes for us to make a reference to Isaiah, for example, not that not that we would necessarily need to quote Isaiah chapter 60, verse 1, but perhaps we could quote the book of Ephesians or something important in the book of Mormon. We would have the words of Scripture occur to us in normal life or in normal opportunities to teach or in perhaps in our ecclesiastical duties. We would have these words occur to us and we would realize that God has already given us the revelation that we need for that particular situation that we're in. And this is in my opinion, one of the lessons we can take from Ephesians chapter 5. And, you know, there was this wonderful talk in General Conference by our uh, General Sunday School President, Mark Pace. And what he said was, we have moved, he's talking specifically now about the Come Follow Me program of the church. And he said, we've moved from reading the scriptures to studying the scriptures in a profound way. I recommend that whole talk because it talks about the power of the Come Follow Me curriculum. And obviously I'm preaching to the choir because none of you would be listening if it weren't important to you to get uh, your Come Follow Me instruction. You wouldn't be listening to this podcast and I wouldn't be presenting it if we didn't already believe that. But this this is an important talk because it, it lets us know 
how how many blessings that we have when we engage in personal study of the scriptures. And there's just no possible way. Uh, the fact that we had church for three hours and we had one hour a week of Sunday school, and a lot of people were thinking that was enough, there's no possible way we can learn all we need to know about the scriptures just by going to Sunday school every week. And that's why the church said, why are we trying to do this? What we need to do is have people understand that they have seven days a week where they need to be treasuring up continually the words of life. Now, later on in Ephesians chapter 5, Paul talks about one of the ways in which we can become one. And this is, we've we've talked, I, I hesitate to get too much into this, but I feel like I should. We've talked a couple of times about the ways in which Paul appears to be telling us that men and women are not equal uh, servants of God. And I'm going to talk a little bit about this particular one that occurs in Ephesians chapter 5. So first of all, uh, he's, he's telling the, the saints that they need to become one. And then he says in verse 21, submitting yourselves one to another in the fear of God. And that's that's a verse I want to plant firmly in your minds, submitting yourselves one to another in the fear of God. So he's going to talk now about wives submitting themselves to their husbands. And this is, much has been made of this, this uh, passage in the, the idea that women, that if you believe in the gospel of Christ, then you must believe that somehow women are lesser children of God than men are. And uh, so I'm going to explain why that is not what Paul is teaching here. And also I'm going to explain why, even if it is what Paul is teaching here, because we can't know exactly, right? But uh, even if it is what Paul is teaching here, that it's not true. And so as we talk about uh, wives submitting themselves to their husbands, as it says in verse 22, remember that verse 21 says, submitting yourselves one to another. Okay, so let's read the offending passage and see what we can take from it. Wives, verse 22, Ephesians 5, Wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands as unto the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, and he is the Savior of the body. Therefore, as the church is subject unto Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. Now, this sounds, uh, by today's standards, this sounds like women are being told, okay, you're... (laughs) Your husband rules over you in every detail of your life, and you need to listen to his not only his teachings, but his instructions towards you in every particular of your lives. Okay, let's continue. Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it, that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word, that he might present it to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. So ought men to love their wives as their own bodies. He that loveth his wife loveth himself. For no man ever yet hated his own flesh, but nourisheth and cherisheth it, even as the Lord the church. So, uh, first of all, you may have noticed that the admonition of Paul towards husbands was longer than the admonition towards wives. And their aspiration is greater. They have a bigger task to do, which is that they have to actually duplicate the love of Christ, that that they have to treat their wife as they treat themselves. Okay, so let's let's examine this, this admonition towards women, that they have to submit their 
own, they have to submit themselves unto their husbands as they would unto God himself. First of all, uh, I'm going to skip forward into chapter 6. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 5. Servants, be obedient to them that are your masters according to the flesh, with fear and trembling in singleness of your heart as unto Christ, not with eye service as men pleasers, but as servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, with good will, doing service as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that whatsoever good thing any man doeth, the same shall he receive of the Lord, whether he be bond or free. This passage was used by those in the uh, Confederacy, in the American Confederacy, to justify the slavery that existed in the United States, in the southern states of the United States in the 1800s. Now, I have a question for you. Do you think that Paul, if he had observed the way that slave masters were treating their slaves in the 1850s, 40s, 50s, and 60s, do you think that Paul would have been okay with the way that we practiced slavery in the United States? Uh, I would submit to you, it's, it's impossible to know what Paul intended or what he would have done, right? But I would submit to you that the answer is absolutely not. There's no possible way that Paul would have been okay with any of that. And that's because we didn't practice slavery in the same way. The, the slaves that were owned in the United States, number one, it was racially based. Number two, they were property. And uh, so the word that is translated in chapter six as servants is actually, it can mean slave. It, it, it's translated elsewhere as bond slaves, uh, but it was closer to indentured servitude. Nevertheless, people took what Paul had expressed out of his own culture and said, if you are an indentured servant to someone, don't just give them service that you, don't just give them what you owe them, but give them service with your heart. That actually seems like good advice, right? If you work for somebody, do it not just because you're trying to do the bare minimum, but give it, give it all you got. Now, if we take that out of context and we try to force it to fit our culture, and, um, or as the, as the slaveholders did of the South, then we can make it mean all kinds of things. And by this, what I want to teach you is that uh, Paul was speaking out of his own culture, and that is proof that he's speaking out of his own culture. If we have uh, tried to wrest the meaning from his culture into our culture, what we will end up with is something that doesn't match. And therefore, we can be it can be used to further an idea that Paul never intended at all. And so then... Uh, we, we do have to bring these cultural considerations into play, into question, when we're reading these chapters about Paul and women, right? There are several. There are, two, there are two passages in Corinthians. There's one here in Ephesians, and there's another one coming up in Timothy where it seems to be saying that women are second-class citizens and that men get all of the choice and women get none of the freedom, right? And uh, so, first of all, Let's take it in context and remember that even though it says in verse 22, wives, submit yourselves unto your husbands, in verse 21, it says, submit, we're submitting ourselves unto each other, one to another, in the fear of God. And so here's, what, here's a meaning that I would propose, taking what, what Paul said in his culture and applying it unto ours in an appropriate way rather than an inappropriate way. What Paul is saying is that women are to give to men the opportunity to have responsibility over the family. And men are to have this responsibility and to take it as seriously as they would as if they have the very 
uh, stewardship of Christ in their hands and that they would, they would treat their wife as they would treat their own self. So you can understand how serious that responsibility given to men is and that there actually isn't a whole lot of room for men to say, oh, uh, you know, honey, you're supposed to submit yourself unto me in everything, right? There's no room for a man who is actually uh, following this admonition to say any, any such thing to his wife. The room that he has is to say, wow, am I loving her the way Christ loved the church? <laughs> am I giving myself for her the way Christ gave himself for the church? And so who, who is it that's going to enforce this idea that a woman needs to submit herself to her husband? Uh, as unto God, secondly. Now that's the second part of this. If a woman is submitting herself unto husband unto God, it presupposes that she's submitting herself unto God. Now, um, as long as she's doing that, right, then her husband can't tell her to do anything that would be outside of the desires of God for her. So what I see in this, in, in this passage is actually, if, if we were to uh, translate it into our culture appropriately, what Paul is saying is the, the familial relations that exist between husband, wife, and children are part of us becoming one within the family of God. That, that the gospel, the entire truth of the gospel is echoed in family relationships. And at the end of chapter 5, what Paul says is, I think, I think this is important, he says, Nevertheless, let every one of you in particular so love his wife even as himself, and the wife see that she reverence her husband. A better way to remember, render this might be, uh, husbands, you, have to, you are to love your wives, and wives, you are to respect your husbands. I think this is fascinating because there is a whole science today based on the differences between men and women and denying those differences. So on the one hand, we have all these self-help books and relationship guides that help men understand women and women understand men. And overwhelmingly, the message that I have received from those seems to be that what men desire the most in a relationship is the respect of his woman. And what a woman desires most in a relationship is the love and attention of her man. This very kind of adoration and valuing that Paul is describing here. And the very kind of reverence or respect that Paul is describing here is what men most aspire to. It's what they most hope for from a relationship. And Paul is commanding men and women to give each other what they most need from a relationship. And he's also saying that the very gospel itself is, is echoed by this kind of a relationship between a man and a woman. You give to each other what you most need. To further address the idea that women are second-class citizens, I want to I want to give you some of my notes from the general women's session that occurred last Saturday night. Uh, this is from the talk of President Nelson, just a couple of quotes. The first one, I'm inspired by each husband who demonstrates that his most important priesthood responsibility is to care for his wife. Uh, here's another quote, when a man understands the majesty and power of a righteous, seeking, endowed Latter-day Saint woman, is it any wonder that he feels like standing when she enters the room. And uh, this is just before it from President Eyring's talk. 
in the same session, but he was quoting President Nelson, and he says, when he, after he finishes saying that God's work and glory is to bring to pass the immortality and eternal life of man, he says, his devoted daughter disciples may truly say, my work and my glory is to help my loved ones reach that heavenly goal. To help another human being reach one's essential potential is part of the divine mission of woman. She molds living clay to the shape of her hopes. This is the measure of her creation. It is ennobling, edifying, and exalting. Now, these are these are two men who are at the highest positions in the restored church, and to uh, to feel like they could say such a thing and then also believe the doctrine that women are second-class citizens. Simply, those two ideas are not reconcilable. And so I hope as you read uh, Ephesians chapter 5, you'll recognize there are some cultural issues here at play. And that's pr- there's proof of that in the, in the fact that slaveholders have used the, uh, the very similar or a, a passage right after this to justify actually owning another human being, something with which Paul would have never agreed. And because they took something from his culture and applied it inappropriately onto their own, then they came up with this idea that is that has no place in the gospel of Christ. And so I hope as you read uh, verse 22, submit yourselves to your husbands, you will also remember to read, submitting yourselves, verse 21, submitting yourselves one to another in the fear of God. They cannot, those two verses should not be separated, right? We are, it's not just that women are to submit themselves to their husbands, but that we are to submit ourselves to each other in the fear of God. And that the, the makeup of our families is to echo the gospel itself, the gospel message itself, and God's relationship to us. I hope that helps. Um, and, then, and then Paul goes on in chapter 6 to talk about the, the relationship of children to parents. Um, honor your father and your mother, reiterating the, the commandment from the Ten Commandments. And he also has words for not only uh, these servants, but also the masters of the servants. And, and you are to be as to your servants as God would be to people because you remember you have a master in heaven. So it's not just that slaves are to serve with their minds as well as their strength, but that masters are to be benevolent. And you can see that there's this this is bears little resemblance to the slaveholding South, right? This is a different culture, and therefore we shouldn't put this um, we shouldn't put this culture onto ours without any sort of translation. Now, uh, we'll spend the rest of the time talking about uh, Ephesians chapter six, this this armor of God. In verse 12, we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, and against spiritual wickedness in high places. So principalities and powers are rulers. Now, Paul has come up against rulers many times, and they have opposed him, and he's been beaten, he's been uh, tormented, he's been cast out, imprisoned, and mistreated, and even possibly killed and brought back to life, right, because of the rulers of this world and the rulers of the darkness specifically of this world. But Paul is also saying spiritual wickedness in high places. So Paul is saying there exists some dimension of evil that is outside of our normal perception that we're wrestling against. And we have to take a, a, a preparation of righteousness. What it means to take on the armor of God is that we have to be proactive, that, that Satan is out there preparing. He is a, a resourceful, cunning enemy, 
and he is bent. He hates us. He is bent on the destruction of our souls. And so if you knew that you had someone who absolutely hates you, who is out there working day and night to try to destroy you, you wouldn't wait until that attack appears before you get ready for it. And so he's saying, let's be proactive. We're going to take upon us, in verse 13, take upon you the whole Take unto you the whole armor of God, that ye may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all to stand. So, in other words, that you'll be able to stand and that you will stand. That when the the battle comes, not only will you be prepared, but that you will fight and be victorious. Now, I'm going to read first, I'm going to read what Paul says about the armor of God. And then I'm going to read what Isaiah says about the armor of God. And and, uh, this is kind of fun. So, verse 14, chapter 6 of Ephesians. Stand, therefore, having your loins girt about with truth, having on, and this is uh, putting on a belt, right? Having your loins loins girt about with truth means that you're wearing a belt on which you can hang your weapons and other pieces of armor, perhaps. Stand, therefore, having your loins girt about with truth, having on the breastplate of righteousness, your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace, and that's preparation. Now, that's uh, the whole idea of all the armor is that we're prepared. Verse 16, above all, taking the shield of faith, wherewith ye shall be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Okay, so now let's read uh, what Isaiah says. First of all, Isaiah chapter 11, verse 5. Righteousness shall be the girdle of his loins, and faithfulness the girdle of his reins. And this is a description of Yahweh. So not only will Yahweh have uh, the, the belt of righteousness, but he will also have the, the reins of faithfulness. So his horse will be outfitted as well. Isaiah chapter 49, verse 2. He hath made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand hath he hid me, and made me a polished shaft. In his quiver hath he hid me. So Isaiah, the the prophet, the word of God, is not only a weapon, but it's a hidden weapon. It's a secret weapon that can be be brought out when needed in order to to effect a swift victory against. So not only do we have to be prepared, but the the idea of that is that Satan will not be prepared for us if if we are constantly treasuring up the words of life. That's another uh, scriptural or it's another admonition and what we are to do with the scriptures. And then the most famous uh, verse of Isaiah is Isaiah 59, 17. And this is, again, describing uh, Yahweh himself. For So Yahweh is finding that among the children of Israel, there is nobody who's righteous. And so he himself is going to do the work that he had hoped that they would do. And uh, verse 17, he put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation upon his head, he put on the garments of vengeance for clothing and was clad with zeal as a cloak. And the idea that is that Yahweh is going to take the, his clothing, is vengeance and zeal. He's going to take that clothing and repay those who have been righteous and those who have been wicked. And so if you take all of these verses together, you come up with pretty much the whole armor of God from Ephesians, including the sword of the Spirit. And so Paul's sitting in prison without access to the book of Isaiah, and he's combining and synthesizing all of these ideas in his head and changing them slightly so that they can fit his situation. It's uh, such a wonderful composition here. And it basically means the idea, the basic idea is that we have to be proactive in the way in which we are going to, 
to prepare to meet our enemy, our enemy who really does truly want to destroy us and take us off of the path, and we don't have to. Paul is saying if we will prepare, then we will stand in the evil day. It doesn't matter if it's a surprise attack because we're, we have armor and we have surprise attacks of our own, which we can, we can prepare by just hearing the words of the prophet, by, by taking in to us the words of the prophet. So when Paul is finished talking about the armor of God, uh, he says again, and I, w- I just want to one more time tell you this word, and this is uh, Ephesians 6, verse 19, and I'll finish here. He says, for me, that utterance, pray always, right, in verse 18, and then he says, pray for me, that utterance may be given unto me, that I may open my mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in bonds. So ambassador in bonds is similar to prisoner in Christ. And whenever you see, so remember the second half of, uh, of Ephesians is chapter 4 through chapter 6. And at the beginning of chapter 4, he said, I'm a prisoner of Christ. The end of chapter 6 is that I am an ambassador in bonds. And whenever you see an idea repeated at the beginning of a, of a longer passage and at the end, I always think I'm going to look for a parallel structure here. Is there a mirrored or chiasmic structure? And I leave that to you as, a, as an exercise. If you care to read these last three chapters again and try to find the parallels from the beginning of four through the end of six, the middle of four, the middle of six, etc., and go backwards and forwards. And understand that Paul is, with this letter, he's taking his place uh, among the, the prized and revered prophets, the Hebrew prophets that came before him, that, uh, whose words he knew so well, whose words he had treasured up. And he's finally, he's been brought, as he said, God has given me a revelation. These dispensations are given through revelation directly from God. God has given me a revelation to make known the mystery. So pray for me that I can make known this mystery to everyone. And here you and I are discussing the mystery of Paul, which is that we're all meant to be one, that Christ has abolished and he's torn down all the walls that separate us, Jew from Gentile. Those who have been part of the people of Christ and those who have not. And as we have learned in these latter days, those who are on the earth today and those who have come before, all the walls have come down through Christ. And we are all to serve each other and teach each other and be proactive in our preparation to face our enemy. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. This has been Gospel Doctrine, a nonprofit podcast hosted and produced by Mark Holt with bumper music by Kendra Lowe. Gospel Doctrine is not affiliated with nor endorsed by The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints.